Well, good morning, church. It is always a blessing for us to be together. Would you pray with me? God, we, we come before you as your people, and we want to be faithful. We want to offer our lives to you. And so as we gather together, not only around times of singing and praying, times of feasting together as your people, we now open our hearts as we gather around your word and we pray, God, that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you would help each one of us hear exactly what you need us to hear. And God, may we, as always, not not only hear those words, but try our best to embody them, to live them, to be your people more and more every day who resemble your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So we're continuing our our current study on the Gospel of Matthew. And go back a week, we raced our way. I literally was almost lightheaded when I got off the stage. I was talking so fast, so I apologize for that. Hopefully you can listen as fast as I was talking. But we we looked at the amazing wisdom that Jesus shares in that that three-chapter sermon that we call the Sermon on the Mount. And we call it that because it's where Jesus first gathers his disciples together. There's a crowd. There's always a crowd, it seems, but he kind of retreats away up to up this mountain, and his disciples come to him, and he starts to instruct them on what life in his kingdom is supposed to be like. It's it's not that he's setting up a bunch of of regulations or moral hurdles where he says, "If, if you can manage to live perfectly this way, then maybe I'll give you entrance into the kingdom. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying, To the degree that you're able to experience these things, that's how you know that you're experiencing my new kingdom as it's breaking into the world. And so much of the life that he describes is, it just flies in the face of the wisdom of the world. A world filled with voices that is constantly encouraging us to look out for ourselves and and take advantage of situations and try to get ahead and, and try to get even. Jesus says, no, there's a deeper wisdom There's a a wisdom from heaven that helps you understand not how you think life works or how it's supposed to work, but how the author of life tells you it actually works. Now, it's after describing what earthly life in the kingdom of heaven is like that then immediately Jesus, he performs these five miracles of healing that in addition to that teaching, show people, show us what the power of the kingdom is like. And I think it's significant that if you've been reading Matthew carefully as we've gone along together, these five miracles of healing are the first miracles Jesus performs in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, obviously, people of faith, we believe that Jesus himself is a miracle, right? There have been amazing, miraculous things that have happened. But in terms of his ministry, he hasn't done anything like this until after he instructs us on what life in his kingdom, how how it can work, how it can actually be something that we experience. He wants to go beyond just talking about it to showing that there's this power. There's not just wisdom from heaven, but there's this power from heaven that's breaking into our lives and is setting people free from whatever it is that's imprisoning them. Right? He, he heals three different people 
in Matthew chapter 8 of various different diseases, but then he also calms a storm, and then he ends up casting out demons that are wrecking the lives of these two men that come to him begging for help. It doesn't matter what you're hurting from. It doesn't matter what you're going through. The power of the kingdom is stronger, and Jesus says it's here. Now, I think it's significant, though, that it's only after he talks about the kingdom that he starts to, to show it, that he starts, starts to di- display it in ways that people can, well, they don't, have to, they don't have to study anything. They don't have to read anything. They just encounter it, right? That, that Jesus, what, he, what he's making sure is happening is that those who see the kingdom breaking in have first been given ways to interpret that, to understand it's not just his power, it's God's power. It's, it's the power of heaven, right? And that, that as much as the Sermon on the Mount is something that, that we come back to time and again, that teaching wouldn't have as much power if Jesus weren't able to then turn around and say, okay, you, you want to know if I'm serious or not? You want to know if, if I understand really how life is supposed to work and how good life can be? Well, let me show you. The teaching comes first. The demonstration comes second. And I think it's because Jesus doesn't want to just start out getting a bunch of crowds together because he's able to do these miracles. Because if everybody follows him, if all of his disciples first find out about him because of all these amazing things he can do and they don't have a, they don't have a way to understand where that's coming from and what it's for, he's going to have to spend even more time trying to set people straight. So teaching first, and then the demonstration, and the demonstration of the power then it calls us back to that teaching. And we read it again. We listen again. And this time we read it with new eyes. We listen with new ears. We, we receive it with a new heart because we understand that Jesus isn't just an amazing teacher, but he wants to heal us of every bit of brokenness. He wants to deliver us from all the suffering that we have to go through, that we have to face. Now, sometimes that deliverance doesn't come on our time schedule. Sometimes it doesn't take the shape that we want it to, but Jesus is always working to come and save us. Jesus is always seeking to deliver us. Now, the first miracle that that takes place in Matthew chapter 8 is when this this man whose life has been destroyed through leprosy, right, through an infectious skin disease that has caused him to not only suffer, but because of the law, he's, he's had to to distance himself from the community. He's had to, to distance himself from all of the meaningful relationships in his life. He's been an outsider for no, who knows how long. He breaks the rules to get close to Jesus, and he says, if, if you want to heal me, I know that you can. If you're willing, I know you can do it. And Jesus looks at him with compassion, and he says, I am willing. Be healed. Be clean. And then this centurion comes to Jesus, another outsider. He's, he's not got leprosy in his skin, but in terms of the, the people, the, the Jewish men and women who are surrounding Jesus, this guy, he's a different kind of outsider. He's a Gentile. He doesn't belong. He has no right to be speaking to Jesus, and yet Jesus is going to speak to him. And I want us to open up the Bible to Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 5, so that we can read this story together now. When Jesus went to Capernaum, a centurion approached, pleading with him, right, begging him, Lord, my servant is flat on his back at home, paralyzed, and his suffering is awful. 
And Jesus responded, I'll, I'll come with you and I'll heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. I'm a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and the servant does it. When Jesus heard this, he was very impressed and said to the people following him, I say to you with all seriousness that even in Israel, I haven't found faith like this. Now, if that wasn't hard enough, he keeps going. I say to you that there are many who will come from east and west and sit down to eat with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom, and you could put that phrase in quotations, right? The supposed children of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness. People there will be weeping and grinding their teeth. Jesus said to the centurion, go, it will be done for you just as you have believed. And his servant was healed that very moment. Okay, there's a lot going on here. But one thing I I want us to understand is that something takes place between Jesus and the centurion that only takes place twice in Jesus' life and ministry. And it's this phrase where it says, when Jesus heard him, when Jesus heard his response, he was very impressed. That phrase, it only shows up one other place, and it's in Mark chapter 6, verse 6. And it's a story where Jesus has gone to his own hometown, and he's trying to do some ministry there. And because the people in his hometown remember him when he was in his diapers, and they think they understand who he is and who he isn't, they're not really willing to trust that he could be the Messiah. And in Mark 6, verse 6, it says, Jesus was amazed at their lack of faith. That word amazed is the same word that gets translated here, very impressed. There's only two times in Jesus' earthly life and ministry that we're told Jesus was amazed, that he marveled, that he almost couldn't believe what was happening. One time is when his his own people couldn't believe in him, and the other time is when the wrong guy from the wrong faith believes in him in a way that nobody, nobody else has believed in him up to that point. I don't know about you, but I'd love to be someone who amazes Jesus. I want to be someone where when when Christ is interacting with me and watching my life, that he's very impressed. And I want us to think a little bit about, for the next few minutes, what is it that causes Jesus to have that kind of response? Now, the the first thing uh, that I... I want us to to recognize is that there are times in our our lives and in our culture where we throw around the term faith in pretty generic, abstract ways. And there's there's a lot of places even in Scripture where we could talk about, you know, something as as big as the concept of faith is going to have different perspectives on it. It's going to carry with it different levels of, of meaning, right? It's like trying to talk about something like hope or love. It's this huge topic. So you'd expect there to be different people having different approaches to understanding it, different, different takes, different applications. And, 
And what I'm about to say, I'm not trying to negate any of those other perspectives that we find in Scripture, but what we're going to talk about this morning is what's happening here in Matthew chapter 8. And in Matthew chapter 8, we find that as far as Jesus is concerned, faith is, is not a mental decision to believe in the idea that, that God exists. And sometimes I feel like that's kind of how we talk mostly about faith. In this story, that's not what it is. It is instead a personal trust in Jesus to be who he claims to be and to do what he claims he can do. Right, because this centurion, this guy from the wrong faith background, this guy who doesn't, he doesn't belong to the membership of the people of God as far as the, the Israelites are concerned as he shows up in the midst of Jesus' ministry, he doesn't have some generalized abstract faith in the existence of God that's impressing Christ. It's that when he comes to Jesus begging for his servant, right, pleading for his slave to be healed, he says to Jesus, I know who you are, and I know what you're able to do. I, I say to my, the, the men in my uh, military company, I tell them what to do, they do it. The people above me in the military, they tell me what to do, I do. I know how power and authority works, and I recognize your power and your authority, and so it's why I've come to you. And Jesus, you don't have to risk crossing all the boundaries and coming into my house and having a bunch of Jewish men and women question whether or not because you came into a Gentile's house, you've broken the law. I don't want you to deal with any of that. All I, all I know is you have the power to do whatever you want, and I'm begging you to heal my slave. Please, just say it, and it'll happen. It's almost as if he's telling Jesus how Jesus' power works. But what's really happening is he sees something in Christ that everybody else seems to miss, at least at this point in the story, which is Jesus is exactly who he claims to be, a new kind of Moses, a new teacher of Israel. And not just that, but somebody who whatever it is that you're dealing with, he can release you from it. He can set you free from it. All you have to do is ask and trust. Look, as, as Christian people, and for those of you who, who may not have already made a commitment to following Jesus, I want to be clear about this, regardless of where we are in our, our spiritual journeys. When it comes to what does it mean to be a follower of Christ, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus, it means that we live in such a way where other people can see how much we trust, that Jesus is exactly who, who he claims to be, and he's able to do what he says he can do. He's the hope of the world. And he sets us free from sin and sorrow and suffering and death. Do we believe it or not? Do we trust it or not? That's what amazes Jesus here. This guy is living in such a way where you can see the trust. You can see the confidence. And it's not, it's not some generic mental agreement. It's caused this guy to cross all kinds of lines, socially and otherwise, and beg for Jesus to do something that he's convinced only Jesus can do. Now, it causes Jesus to point out to the, the Israelite men and women around him, this is what faith is supposed to look like. This is, this is what personal trust, this is how it causes you to behave. 
And this is what matters, Jesus says. And then he taps into a, a deeply held conviction. The people who were waiting for the Messiah and the Messiah's kingdom and what it was going to be like at the end of time, they talked about often, you read in the Old Testament prophets, this day of the Lord when the Messiah's going to show up and everything that's gone wrong is going to be made right. And, and then there's going to be this feast, there's going to be this celebration, and all of God's people are going to be welcome to the table. And Jesus says, I don't know if you know this, but you're not all automatically getting a seat there. In fact, maybe people you've never expected to be at the table are going to be at the table, right? That, that a personal relationship with, with Jesus that's built on trust, that's what gets you a seat at a table in the coming kingdom of God. It's not belonging to some religious tradition that's based on Jesus that automatically reserves you a seat there. Belonging to a faith tradition that's based on Jesus just doesn't automatically get you anywhere, Each of us has to wrestle with the uncomfortable truth that Jesus is trying to point out here, which is that there were lots of people in his original audience that thought, look, we were born at the right place at the right time. We belong to the people of God. Right? We're, we're Israelites, and that's what matters most. We have the right heritage. We go to the right place on the Sabbath. We read the right scriptures. We sing the right songs. And Jesus says, yeah, and you could do all that and not have a personal relationship with me. And if I'm the Messiah and you don't have a personal relationship with me that's built on trust, what makes you think you'd even want to go to the table in the kingdom? What makes you think you'd even, you'd even want to be surrounded by the community of people that they're not defined by by their heritage or their religious tradition, they're defined by the relationship they have with me. And I can promise you there's going to be folks at that table that you wouldn't invite. Do you understand that? Do you see that? That it hinges, all of it's built on. The foundation is this intimate interaction with Jesus that's built on trust. That he is who he says he is and he can do what he says he can do. And we live not just in light of that, but we live because of it. You know that, that song we sing sometimes, Because He Lives? Man, that's a different kind of faith than saying, well, I, I could prove historically that Jesus lived at some point 2,000 years ago in the, you know, the region of, of ancient Israel and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, okay. But do you live your life built on a moment-by-moment -moment trust that your only hope of having true life is your life being caught up in His life? Or do you think there's another way? I want to make this really clear. I think the distinction that Jesus is trying to make for the, the Jewish men and women who are gathered around him and they're trying to figure out whether or not they believe he's the Messiah, I think what's really at stake here is Jesus is trying to say, faith is a commitment but it's not a commitment to get it all right in your life. It's a commitment to trust that I'm the only way it's ever going to be all right. That there, there is a way of life that helps you enter into the kingdom, but it's not a set of moral challenges that you, you have to 
perfectly navigate in order to be deemed good enough. Right? That's, that's the mistake. I think that oftentimes people who, who live lives that are steeped deeply in religion at times, we could get to where we think, okay, it's a set of rules and regulations that we're trying to navigate, we're trying to fulfill, and we're trying to make sure that we're, we're good enough. And Jesus says, no, part of the beginning of faith is realizing there's nothing you can do to make yourself good enough. I love you, and I care about you, and I just want you to trust me. And if you'll trust me, you'll see the kingdom. You'll experience the kingdom. Just trust me. Trusting Jesus is always better than proving that you don't need him. And if we're not careful... Religion can get us to the point where we, we don't realize we've, we've traded out the end goal. And it's more about us and what we're capable of and what we're able to do than it's about our absolute foundational trust that this is about who Jesus is and what he can do. Well, Jesus, in talking to this guy, says not only, you know, this is amazing faith and I want you to pay attention to it and I want you to know what it looks like. There's also something else going on in this interaction of, of trust and, and faith that's happening. And that is the fact that, you know, I, I didn't notice this the first several times I read the story. Because at first it feels like this whole thing's about the centurion and Jesus and how they're treating each other and how this person you don't expect to impress him is the, is the one who does impress him. Not realizing that there's actually someone else in the story who you, you could kind of forget because that, that person's not actually there in the interaction. It's this slave, it's this servant that this military officer is bringing to Jesus in his heart and in his soul and saying, please do something. I don't have the power to heal this guy. I don't have the power to get, to get him better. The doctors don't have the power. You're the only one who has the power. I know how power works. That's why I'm coming to you. But he's not begging for himself. He's not pleading for himself. He's pleading for someone else. And I think it's convicting to me that in this story, right, it's the, the personal faith, the personal trust that one person is giving to Jesus that leads directly to someone else receiving the healing they need from Jesus. Not only in our culture do we at times have these abstract definitions that, that broadly kind of help us understand the concept of faith, but I think if we're really straightforward about it, it tends to be all about my faith and what God's going to use my faith to do in my life. It's not about how my faith is going to change your life. This guy gets it. He understands that if he's going to go to Jesus and beg for someone, maybe he should beg for someone else and not himself. See, he doesn't just understand that Jesus is the Messiah. He understands the heart of the Messiah. That, that the goal is always bigger than me. That the healing is always bigger than you. That the blessing is, is always bigger than us as people of faith who belong to a tradition. If we're going to say it belongs to us, it's all of us. It's everybody. Everywhere. 
This guy understands that if he's going to come and plead for God to use power, it should be for somebody else. It shouldn't be for himself. Now, that's pretty convicting on its own. It's even more convicting to me if you think about how the average person in, in this guy's place in life, how he would have viewed the servants in his household. And servant is just a more polite way to say slave. Aristotle, an ancient Greek philosopher, when he was talking about, you know, how you related to slaves, and Aristotle's not representing like the bottom of the barrel when it comes to ethics and philosophy and all that stuff, right? This is how he talks about it. There can be no friendship nor justice towards inanimate things. Indeed, not even towards a horse or an ox, nor yet towards a slave as a slave. For master and slave have nothing in common. A slave is a living tool, just as a tool is an inanimate slave. This, this isn't Aristotle saying this is how, how it has to be. This is Aristotle saying this is how it should be in civilized society. What that means is that this centurion in Matthew 8 doesn't see his slave the way the world has told him he's supposed to see his slave. And that teaches us a lot about who he is, his character, his commitments. It's, it's what Jesus can see just in the way he's talking about this guy, right? He says he's hurting it's awful. Would you do something for him? Now, not only is, is that how he sees him and talks about him, but he's, you, you get the image, he's almost on his knees in front of a bunch of people who are judging him because he's, he doesn't have the right kind of faith heritage that they do, and he hasn't made all the right kinds of faith commitments that they think he should make. He is, he's debasing himself for the sake of what Aristotle calls a living tool. He refuses to see this person in his life, someone Jesus would describe as the least of these. He refuses to see him the way his world has taught him to see him. He sees someone to care about and love. And the way he loves his slave in this moment is to throw his reputation out the window. I mean, he's a centurion. He is a member of the opposing military force who is oppressing the Israelites. He comes to a Jewish rabbi. You don't think people are going to tell stories about that later in the barracks? What are you doing begging this Jewish rabbi for help? He doesn't care. He doesn't care because there's too much at stake, and there's not too much at stake for him. There's too much at stake for this servant, this slave that lives in his house, and he's going to be good to him, and that tells us a whole lot more about him than his slave. That he wants he wants something better. And Jesus is going to give it to him. It is convicting to me, brothers and sisters, that, that this guy, he impresses Jesus, not just because he trusts him, but because he sees someone else the way Jesus does when the whole world is stacked against them. I don't know about you, but I want to be somebody who amazes Christ. I want to be somebody whose life impresses, impresses Jesus. It makes, a, makes this moment where 
he stops and he says, man, this is very good, right? This is, this is how things are supposed to work. And it, it's convicting to me that too often my interactions with Jesus, my, my prayer life, my conversations with God, it's too much about me and what I feel like I need and what I want. It's not nearly enough about me taking the least of these to the throne room of heaven and saying, bless them, take care of them, help them, God, because I don't know how to help them the way that only you can. Do something. Help us. It's convicting to me, right? It's, it's basically this idea that, that your trusting relationship with, with Jesus, it, it should bring healing to the people around you who are hurting. That that, that is what Christian faith, it, it's what it does. It's how Christian faith is supposed to work. In other words, if you're asking yourself, what does faith look like in real life? It looks like God's people going to God over and over again for the sake of the people that this world has forgotten and discarded and walked away from. That if you want to know if we're living faithful lives, then our prayer lives should be more about other people who are hurting than about ourselves. And it's not that we wouldn't talk to God about the things that are breaking our hearts, but one of the things that better be always breaking our hearts is how people around us are suffering and being mistreated. And and the question is, are we willing to follow in Jesus' footsteps to say, we'll do anything, we'll give anything up to our lives in order to help alleviate that suffering? I don't want to be in the crowd of people that just surround Jesus. I want to be one of the disciples who are following in the footsteps of Jesus. And what that means in Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13, is I better figure out how to be more like an ancient centurion who cared more about helping someone who was hurting than he cared about how, how anyone else saw him or if anyone understood him or if anybody thought that what he was doing made any sense. He didn't care about any of that. He cared, he cared that he understood his own limits He understood what he could and he couldn't do and he turned to Jesus because he believed that 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 was the only place he could go, that Jesus was the only person he could turn to for the sake of someone else. Who is that person in your life, brothers and sisters? There's someone in your life you know about right now who's hurting. In fact, if you think about it, I'm guessing there's far more than just one person in your life, someone around you who's, who's going through something that's difficult, that they don't have it within themselves to overcome. And what I want to challenge you to do this week is bring those people to Jesus. This guy's not believing in the place of his slave Right? His faith isn't automatically becoming his slave's faith. His faith is directly blessing his slave. I'm not saying you and I can believe on behalf of other people. I'm saying if we believe, then why aren't we using that trust in Jesus to ask God to work in their lives in ways that only God can work? I want to be somebody who has faith that looks like that. I don't want to be someone who has faith where I have an answer for for all the disagreements and all the the different ways we could define God and the ways we could talk about the Bible and say, I know I'm right and you're wrong and that makes me faithful and you're, no. I want to be somebody who understands that every single time I start to speak to Jesus, someone else's life could be saved. 
And why am I not talking to Jesus about that far more often than I do already? Who is it in your life? We're going to sing in just a moment. Who is it in your life that you need to be bringing on your, on your hands and knees as you pray, as you're pleading for God to have heaven come to earth? Who are you praying for? Whose life are you lifting up? I'm begging you this week, if you aren't already, start praying for people who desperately need God to move in them, to move in their life, to move in their situation so they can taste the beauty and the goodness of a kingdom that's all about God's and it's not about ours. Let's stand together and sing.